Well, let's begin by calling upon the Lord to, to bless our study this evening. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, uh, this is uh, thy holy word. And uh, Lord, we cannot truly understand and, and discern what, Lord, the, these words are saying uh, in the deep and spiritual way that we ought to understand them apart from thy spirit. We ask, Lord, come and uh, reveal to us, Lord, thy truth, thy righteousness. Give to us, Lord, a uh, an earnest desire, a hungering and thirsting, Lord, to know Thee, uh, to be close unto Thee, not to be strangers, but if we profess faith in Christ, to grow in that ever closer and intimate relationship with Thee, our God. Bless now Thy Word, forgive us, Lord, wherein we have sinned against thee, uh, we praise thee and thank thee. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the end of John chapter 17 uh, this evening. In the Bible studies to come, we will be chapter 18. We'll be looking <clears throat> at the trials of the Lord Jesus before the uh, Sanhedrin, before the civil magistrates, the trials uh, in which he, was, he is falsely accused. And then in chapter 19 of John, we begin looking at uh, the crucifixion, the suffering of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 20, his resurrection. 20 and 21, uh, his post-resurrection appearances. So we are certainly coming, we have a, a number of Bible studies to go, but we are certainly coming uh, closer to the end of the Gospel of John. So we'll be considering this evening John chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. So as we come to the end of this uh, glorious prayer of the Lord Jesus, in which we are permitted to hear uh, his prayer, his intercessory prayer, not only for the disciples that were present within, his, uh, within hearing this prayer, but also 
he's included us in this prayer as well. Remember that this prayer is not expressed by mere wishes, uh, but his prayers are always effectual, always accomplish what it is that he prays for. What does he pray for in John chapter 17? Well, we've gone over these a number of times, but as we conclude the chapter, let's just review. He prays, first of all, for our preservation. Not a preservation uh, from the presence of evil, but he prays for our preservation from evil overcoming and destroying us. He prays that the evil one and evil that comes from the evil one would not uh, so overwhelm us that it would destroy us, uh, destroy our souls. And so he's praying that we would be preserved. Next, he uh, prays for our sanctification. Um, through all the temptations, through all the trials, suffering, heartaches that uh, we face, uh, he prays that all of those would be used to grow us uh, in the, into the image of Christ, to conform us to the image of Christ, to look more and more like him. Uh, Jesus is our pattern. Jesus is our model. Look at his suffering. Uh, and then he triumphed. And then the crown was given unto him. Uh, we can't expect the crown before the suffering. The suffering comes first in this life by way of trials. And that doesn't mean that all that we experience in life is, is suffering. But there's suffering in this life. Um, and it is, again, appointed by the Lord. Uh, not because God's cruel, uh, but because he loves us and he knows that it's through suffering that we uh, consider how much we need him. Uh, when everything is going well and uh, everything just seems uh, uh, to be falling into place, um, just consider your life. Uh, and when you've drawn the closest to the Lord, when you've leaned upon him, it's when you saw your weakness, uh, when you saw you, you can't handle this on your own. Uh, and so, um, sanctification uh, accomplishes that by God's grace. And then thirdly, he, Jesus prays that all those who truly trust in him might be brought to a most blessed visible unity in doctrine, in worship, in church government. Uh, not merely a mystical, spiritual unity, which we all share uh, in Christ, all those who are by faith united to Christ are joined one to another so that we do have a communion with all true believers in Jesus Christ. We would never want to deny that. That is a blessing. In fact, uh, our confession teaches that uh, we uh, share in the uh, union and communion of the saints. Uh, we share in the graces and the gifts of all believers. We're, we're all united together. And 
If we don't begin there, then there will not be any visible unity, so we have to begin with the spiritual unity uh, to get to the visible unity. The visible unity doesn't mean anything, again, if there's not a spiritual unity that the Lord has brought about, first of all, and, uh, but the visible unity is not unimportant. Uh, visible unity uh, in a family. Um, just to say that, well, this is a Christian family uh, without there being a visible unity um, uh, doesn't uh, bring about the end result that we're seeking. We want to see uh, visible unity. Uh, we want to see something tangible. We want to be, see something, you know, with our, with our eyes that this, this is what the Lord talked about, that us being one. And we realize in the church we're, we're certainly, um, w with regard to God's people throughout the world, we, we certainly have a lot uh, to reach uh, in order to accomplish that. And we've been talking about that in the last two uh, Bible studies, that visible unity. And um, we, we uh, as Jesus prayed for it, we pray and join our prayers with his, that there will be, and not, not might be, but there will be a visible unity uh, yeah, amongst God's people throughout the world yet to come. Even before heaven, uh, there will be in history a visible unity. And then lastly, and this is where we are this evening, Jesus prays that we will not only be with him spiritually while we are, are in this world, there is, a, there is a closeness and a nearness of communion with Jesus while in this world, but Jesus prays that we will all uh, be with him in the glory of heaven, that we, would, that we will all, who trust in him by faith, that we will all be present, see him face to face, um, just as the just as his own disciples after his resurrection and those resurrection appearances of Christ saw him face to face, talked with him, communed with him. That's what he prays for all of us who have trusted in him that we would have that face to face. Uh, time uh, in heaven, in glory, uh, with the Lord Jesus. The fact that he prays that this would, uh, that this will come, uh, speaking of our being with him in glory, expresses to us that he not only wills it to happen, that it will happen, but it doesn't will it to happen with some kind of dispassionate, um, unaffected type of um, reaction within him. He wills it to happen because he wants it to happen. He desires that we spend all eternity with him. He wants us as his people to be there in heaven with him. And so, again, to understand his, his prayer, and I, I would just 
uh, again, though we here upon the earth, we don't have that face-to-face um, type of relationship with Jesus yet, but we shall have that. But what we do have are tokens of that face-to-face relationship with the Lord Jesus. We have a token of that every Lord's Day. Uh, the Christian Sabbath. Why, why does God call us to set aside all of our ordinary uh, worldly activities on the Lord's Day in order to deprive us of uh, our fun, our pleasure, things of that nature? No. He calls us up out of the world. He calls us away from all those distractions and all of those employments and recreations so that we can enjoy him, so that we can spend time with him. You see, if we have merely a negative idea and view of, of the Sabbath, that, you know, it's just, I can't do the things I want to do, want to do. So if we approach it from that perspective, all the thou shalt nots, uh, you know, related to uh, the Lord's Day, uh, then it's going to be a very negative thing to us. But if we rather <clears throat> have the idea, look what I am able to do. I am able to set aside by God's grace one whole day where I spend that day in communion with him to uh, in private um, activities by way of, uh, um, by way of worship, uh, by way of public, you know, with God's people, by way of family, uh, by way of communion with the saints. I'm, I'm able to enjoy the presence of the Lord. Uh, and it may not be face to face, but it is, again, a token that if we do not enjoy the Sabbath, if it is not a special day to us because we get to spend the whole day with the Lord in, without all these other distractions, why would we think that we would enjoy all eternity, spending all eternity with the Lord in communion with Him? Um, it, again, this is preparation. You know, that is the eternal Sabbath. God's given us earthly Sabbaths to prepare us for that eternal Sabbath. And so we now. Uh, began to enjoy the Lord and commune with him by way of these earthly Sabbaths. And they, uh, to the degree that the earthly Sabbath is precious to us because, because we are able to enjoy that, that special time uh, with the Lord our God, uh, with the Lord Jesus, uh, then I believe that we are preparing ourselves uh, for that eternal Sabbath, uh, to enjoy Him. Then, I mean, we, we try to set aside as much of the earthly distractions as we can. They, we can't always do that, obviously. We have certain things that have to be taken care of. You know, we have to eat, we, you know, various things like that. But in heaven, there will be no distractions. Uh, where we'll be able, not only there will be no sinful distractions, but there will be no distractions. We will enjoy without sin, without uh, temptations, without um, 
uh, any distractions to be able to enjoy the Lord. Uh, and again, uh, we're, we're reminded uh, that that's really, for the Christian, <clears throat> and we'll be looking at this a little more closely, uh, but that is really what makes heaven heaven, uh, that Jesus himself will be there in all of his glory, and we will be sharing in that glory with him. Verse 24 says, Father, I will that, that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So this, uh, this again, I've perhaps uh, given us already a summary of what the Lord is praying for at this point. But as we look at this verse, uh, Jesus says, um, Father, I will. You know, just the, the verb there, I will. Um, that's not just expressing a mere wish. He's not expressing a uh, possibility that this might happen where we um, are glorified and enjoy that 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 blessed presence of the Lord in heaven forever uh, it's not even a probability it is a certainty I will in other words he is saying uh, I will that this certainly come to pass for all of those that uh, uh, have been given to me by the Father uh, to redeem and to save. It reminds me of uh, this account earlier in Matthew chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, of this leper. And, and behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying... Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him and say, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Uh, this is the same idea when Jesus says, I will. In other words, I will that thou be clean. Uh, that's my will. And so likewise, it is his will here, as certainly as that happened, so as certainly will all of those who trust in him be at death carried into the very presence of God. And then after the resurrection of our bodies uh, to be forever with him in the new heaven and the new earth. Now this doesn't mean when Jesus says, I will, doesn't mean that the Father doesn't likewise will the same thing, but Jesus is simply saying that the Son wills what the Father wills. Uh, there's not any disagreement or tension between the Father's will and the Son's will. This will of the Lord Jesus here that he prays that I will that they also whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. This is his last will and testament before he 
uh, goes to the cross. Uh, Hebrews talks about uh, this idea of a last will and testament of the Lord Jesus. And the will is not um, opened and read and dispersed to the heirs of the will until the testator dies. Jesus is the testator. He's the one who, who has made the last will and testament. And here his will is that we be with him forever. And when he died, he purchased that. His death secured that last will and testament for us. Um, that's, that's, again, a glorious thing for us to cling to, uh, that that is the will of the Lord Jesus. You remember Jesus promised uh, the thief on the cross that he would be that very day with Jesus in paradise in Luke 23, 43. Paul spoke of his death as being absent from the body and yet present with the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, present with the Lord. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise to the thief, today. I dare say it, and I want to emphasize this again. It's not the location that makes heaven heaven. It's the person that makes heaven heaven. It's not because heaven is just somewhere out there. It's who is in heaven. It's Jesus that is in heaven that makes heaven heaven. Otherwise, uh, again, um, it would not be heaven if Jesus were not there. And so, again, um, if we do not here upon the earth desire to be near the Lord, if we do not desire to commune with him, whether it's setting aside one day for the Lord or whether it's just in our everyday life, if we do not desire to be near him, if we do not desire to spend time with him by way of those appointed times of our own private and secret worship, family worship, but just throughout the day, we don't you know, forget him. We take him with us wherever we go. I mean, he is with us, but we, we consciously take him with us wherever we go. If we don't desire that, if we don't want that, I, 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 you know, as a Christian, I mean, I know we, we all falter, we all stumble, we all are forgetful of these things. But if we don't de even desire it, um, how are we different than a non-Christian who doesn't desire it? If that's not even something within us, so that when we forget him, when we don't take him with us, um, that we are sometime throughout the day reminded, I, I've not really, I've not spent time with the Lord. I've not, I've not communed with him. I've not uh, brought him with me into this situation or into that situation or the, into this conversation or into that conversation.
That's why I think the the psalmist in Psalm 1611 says, Thou will show me the path of life in thy presence. Notice, in thy presence is fullness of joy. Not some joy, not a little bit of joy. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's what makes heaven heaven, to be in the presence of God. Now, an unbeliever, that's scary, to be in the presence of God. That's not a, that's not a thing to rejoice in, to be in God's presence, because for an unbeliever, they realize to be in God's presence is to stand before their judge and uh, to stand before a judge who is absolutely righteous and who will bring his righteous judgment upon them. But for the believer who, who trusts in the Lord alone for his eternal salvation, uh, that's the place of comfort, that's the place of peace and joy. Um, be able to start our day um, in communion with the Lord or throughout, you know, in the course of the day to have a time just to pause, you know, at the end of the day. Um, I know we, again, life is stressful. Uh, life is filled with many trials and heartaches. But dear ones, uh, to be able to go to the Lord um, to be able to um, uh, to enjoy His presence, to know that when we call upon Him, uh, that we are brought, as it were, into those heavenly places, and just the the calm, uh, the peace um, that passes all understanding when we just give everything over the Lord and we just come into his presence. That is, again, a blessed. And I'm not saying that we all experience, and you know, by way of our feelings and emotions, all um, feel exactly the height of that every time that we come into the presence of the Lord. But, uh, but those times uh, that we have really known that sweet presence of God, um, that's, that's just a foretaste of what we will enjoy for all eternity in the presence of God. And so, likewise, just as this parallel uh, that I you know, com- compare, just as it's not the location of heaven that makes heaven heaven, it's the person. So likewise, it's not the location where you are here upon the earth. It's not the circumstances that bring uh, joy and peace and happiness. We're always thinking, well, if I was just in a different place, if I was just in a different set of circumstances, I would be happy, I'd be filled with joy, everything would be just great. It's not the location. It's not the circumstances. It's the person. It's the person. When we are 
regardless of the circumstances or the location, when we are enjoying communion with Christ, when we are blessed with his presence, knowing he is with us and we are calling out to him and pouring out our hearts to him, when we are uh, listening to him as, as the word of God is read, as we read his word, there's this dialogue going on. He's speaking to us through his word. We're speaking to him um, through our prayers. Again, uh, that's, that's where joy comes from, is communion with Christ. That's where the, the peace comes from. Uh, no matter what's going on, it's not the location. It's not where you are, you know, at what age, you know, uh, or specific uh, place you live here upon the earth or the circumstances you're going through. We need to get away from that. We need to get away. If only things were different, everything, I'd be happy. We've got to get away from that. That's not the case. That's always looking for thinking the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, and it isn't. We'll take wherever we go, if we're not taking Christ with us, wherever we are in our life, we'll find the same problems arise. But if we take Christ with us wherever we go, we will find that he is able to keep us, to guard us. His love is there to, uh, to shower upon us, to give us hope. Um, and not only hope in this life, but hope forevermore in heaven. So as I just uh, on this one verse, uh, verse 24, as we kind of conclude some thoughts here, do we want to go to heaven uh, only because we don't want to go to hell? Is that why we want to go to heaven? Simply because we don't want to go to hell? Um, I'm not saying that's not a good reason uh, that we don't want to go to hell, therefore we do want to go to heaven. I'm not saying you know, there's something in and of itself wrong with not wanting to go to hell um, and rather to go to heaven. But if that's our only reason, we want to just escape hell and that's why we want to go to heaven then I, I think that's uh, very, very incomplete. Uh, that's that's uh, uh, not how we should be thinking at all as Christians. Rather, we should want to go to heaven first and foremost because Jesus is there, our Savior, the one who has loved us from all eternity, the one who has purchased our salvation, who provides everything that we need in this life. Uh, we want to be with him. That's something, again, uh, for uh, your time of secret prayer, uh, your time of family prayer, just to emphasize to yourself, to your children, we want to go to heaven because Jesus is there. We want to go to heaven to, to enjoy what is there, not just by way of... Um, 
our own pleasures and things, but because the Lord Jesus is there and will bless us with all of these wonderful gifts and blessings. Verse 25, Jesus continues, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. That is, uh, the disciples that were present there with him as he was praying, and as they were listening, the 11 disciples um, have known that thou hast sent me. Notice uh, again how the Lord begins this, this uh, part of his prayer. O oh, righteous Father, righteous Father. Um, the Father is indeed a loving Father. Uh, that is taught uh, in various places of God's word. He is a loving Father. He is a father has an endless, an infinite amount of love for us. He loves us uh, as he loves his only begotten son. We are loved because we are in Christ. Uh, he loved us from eternity because we, again, are in Christ with that special kind of love, a love that he does not have for, um, for the world, uh, but he has a special love for us. So again, I'm not taking away anything from the fact that our God is a loving Father. Uh, he is a loving Father who cannot change in that love. Um, his love can, for us cannot increase and grow his love for us cannot decrease um, because he loves us as he loves his own son. Can his love for the Lord Jesus increase or decrease? No. Nor can his love for us ever change. He's, he is immutable. God, that's one of his uh, attributes. God is immutable. He's immutable in his Wisdom, being, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And in his love. Jesus would first have to be unloved or loved less for, him, for us to be unloved or for us to be loved less. Because, again, we are in him. We are in Christ. But... So I'm not taking away from anything, nor is Jesus here taking away from the love, loving uh, aspects of the Father, but he does pray, O oh, righteous Father, righteous Father, emphasizing that there is nothing unright, there is nothing wrong, there is nothing contrary to what is good and right in God, our Father, nothing. That's what Jesus is saying as well in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. Let thy name be set apart as holy, as, as entirely different uh, than anything else. Thy name is, is absolutely holy. So when we approach God 
let us, as God's people, uh, let us never forget that we approach a father of love, indeed, but we also approach a father of righteousness as well, who is the very standard of what is right and what is wrong. There is no standard above God. God doesn't follow some standard by way of his conduct, his speech. He doesn't answer to anybody. He is who he is. He is the standard of what is right and wrong. And he sets an absolute standard for us. Um, his law, again, is is a reflection of his righteousness, of his rightness. Uh, uh, his law, therefore, being his moral law, being a reflection of his right, rightness, that should tell us very clearly that his moral law can't change. His moral law applies to everyone. Um, that's why, again, the Ten Commandments, a summary of God's moral law, is right, is true for everyone in all ages, all people, whether they're Christians or non-Christians. His moral law is right because it reflects him who is right, absolutely right. He's the absolute standard of what is right, what is good, what is holy, what is loving. Therefore, as we look about our culture today, <clears throat> what is right in the minds of most people is determined by judges, a Supreme Court, legislators, or what is right is determined by a majority of the people uh, which, again, if those are the standards of right, then we have no reason to condemn Hitler uh, in all that he did because uh, uh, he set certain standards. The majority of the people in Germany elected him uh, to uh, that place of authority. Uh, he did not impose himself. He was, he was duly elected. So again, if it's a, in a society, if it's uh, the judges, if it's the legislators, if it's the majority that determine what's, what's right, um, then uh, we have no reason to condemn anything that a nation or a society or a culture decides to do if it's, as long as it's what they want to do. But that's not how the Bible tells us we determine what's right. We determine what's right based upon what God says. He is the absolute standard of what is right. He is righteous. That's what the Lord Jesus means when he says, Oh, righteous Father. So there cannot be, as in our culture today, there cannot be contrary truths. You can't have two truths that are opposed one to another. One is either right, one is either wrong, or they're both wrong. 
but they can't both be right and opposed to one another. Uh, that, that, again, uh, is not true of God. Uh, God has one truth. Uh, he reveals that truth and praise God. Again, he's revealed his truth uh, in nature, uh, in the light of nature that is within us, but he's also re revealed that truth to us in his word, which he has preserved and kept authentic uh, throughout the generations uh, that by God's spirit have been preserved, uh, that word that has been preserved unto us. It's just relativism that basically teaches that there is no absolute standard of right and wrong. But that's where we live today in a relativistic society and culture. Um, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And uh, there ought, in, 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 the, in the judgment of the world, there ought not to be consequences if someone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Of course, unless, you know, uh, you know, in the culture, uh, it, unless it uh, affects me. If it affects me, then, then it's wrong. If it's not what I like, then it's wrong. Uh, but, you know, again, uh, that's, that's the duplicity, the relativism of, of, this, of this age in which we live. Here in verse 25, um, Jesus says, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. So the unbelieving world, Lord Jesus says, does not know God. The unbelieving world may have uh, some kind of an intellectual knowledge of God uh, that is revealed in nature, um, the light of nature, uh, or an, an unbeliever may have read the Bible and, and believes that certain things that are recorded in the Bible are true. Um, an unbeliever doesn't have to reject everything that is found in the Bible. Um, they may embrace many things that are found in the Bible intellectually. Uh, but that's not... That's not what the Lord means when he says, when he's speaking, speaking here, uh, but I have known thee. Uh, Jesus is not simply saying, I have known thee intellectually, and that his disciples likewise have known God merely intellectually. Yes, there is an intellectual knowledge. There are facts, there, there are truths that if we truly know God, that we will embrace about God and about his word. But the idea of knowing God goes beyond merely believing certain facts about God. It goes again to the idea of a relationship. Uh, that's, the, that's the word that is used many times throughout the scripture for marital intimacy is to know someone, to know your wife or to know your husband. Um, uh, and, and that implies, again, uh, a different kind of knowledge. It implies that this is a relationship. To know uh, God is to be uh, in a relationship with God, with the Lord Jesus, that he is my father. 
and the Lord Jesus is my elder brother in the family of God. And I have a relationship with them. I, I, I don't simply know certain facts about them, but I am related to them. I commune. I am joined and I commune with them. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying here in verse 25, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. We can only grow in knowing him by way of the revelation that he has given to us in order to know him. Um, if, uh, again, we expect to know somebody, we, we've got to have some kind of communication. Um, there needs to be some kind of a uh, communion, uh, the, some type of a fellowship if you're truly going to know somebody. And uh, the only way that we can know God is uh, for him to tell us about himself. Where do we find that revelation of himself in his word? And so when we pick up our Bibles and we read them, um, that should be really at the top of our thinking that we want to know him. And we read, we study what is written on the pages of Holy Scripture because we want to know him. Not just know things about him, we want to know him. We want to hear him speak unto us. Same thing when you come for preaching on the Lord's Day. You come and ought to come to know him. That should be your, your, your supreme desire is to hear him speak unto you, to know him. Um, and when that is the case, when you pray accordingly, uh, even if it's, again, in you know, all sermons that are preached by myself or by others may be judged by people, some to be better, some not to be so good or whatever. But when you come with the attitude, I want to know him, I want to hear him speak unto me, even if it's just an average type of a sermon uh, that is by way of its presentation, you're going to hear him speak if it, if it is the word of God that is being preached. You're going to hear Jesus speak unto you if that's really why you come. Verse 26, Jesus prays, And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. When Jesus prays that he has <clears throat> made known to his disciples God's name, he's not saying that he simply revealed uh, to his disciples what the name of God was, you know, G-O-D, uh, or F-A-T-H-E-R. He's not, he's not saying I revealed, uh, you know, God's name to my disciples. Uh, in that sense, uh, 
how they are to address God, in other words. Uh, here, as elsewhere, God's name uh, means much more than G-O-D or F-A-T-H-E-R or L-O-R-D. Um, God's name uh, is that by which he makes himself known unto us. So let me particularly emphasize this from the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not take God's name in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. The Shorter Catechism, with regard to the Third Commandment, in question 54, asks, what is required in the Third Commandment? The answer, the Third Commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. God makes himself known through his names, through his titles, through his attributes, those characteristics, divine characteristics that are true of him and of him alone. He makes known himself through his ordinances, all that which he has given to us instituted both in worship uh, but also that which he's in, instituted, say marriage, is an ordinance of God. He instituted that. Um, civil magistracy is an ordinance. Uh, uh, he instituted that for those who lead to be the ministers of God to us for good. That was why he instituted um, civil government. Uh, but also all the ordinances, the sacraments, preaching of the word, singing of psalms, uh, and the prayers, all of these are ordinances of God. He makes, known, he makes himself known through them. His works, uh, his providence and what he has accomplished uh, in history, he makes himself known uh, by way of his providence. That's his name. He makes himself known. And then question 55 of the Shorter Catechism says, what is forbidden in the Third Commandment? And the answer, the Third Commandment forbiddeth all profaning or abusing anything whereby God maketh himself known. Uh, to profane um, maybe we have the wrong idea about what it is, you know, to profane God's name. It's not merely, uh, you know, it's not the idea of just uh, blasphemy, you know, by way of cursing God or something like that. Profane means to make something common and ordinary. So when we make God's name common and ordinary, even if we're not using it, um, in some kind of a curse, uh, we are violating the third commandment. Or when we use something that God uh, has given 
in his word that we are to take very seriously and we make it common and ordinary. Rather than something very serious, we make it light. Or when something is given to us for uh, our good and our blessing, but we, we, we take advantage of it, we misuse it, um, that's profaning God's name. When we, and I'll get very specific here, when we use in um, a light way the word hell, and we use it in our speech, what the, you know, we, we use that word, um, that's profaning God's name because hell is something very, very serious. And when we treat it as something common and ordinary and can just use it in common speech like that, then again, uh, we are uh, profaning God's name because God says um, that's where, again, those who reject him will spend all eternity. Or when we use um, the word damn, even if we don't use God's name before the word damn, it's only God that can damn someone to hell. Uh, and we are profaning God's name. We're usurping his place by us uttering that towards someone else or toward a situation or circumstance. That's profaning God's name. That's taking something very, very serious and making it common, ordinary, and light, when it's not. Or, again, a very common, you know, uh, today, to use the F word. Uh, God instituted marriage, and marital intimacy is something he ordained, and it's a blessing in the context of marriage. And when we use that word, basically so common and ordinary, you know, in an ordinary way, we are lowering. We are lowering what the sanctity of marriage is and that which God has ordained only for marriage. Uh, that, that again, I, I submit to you, is a way in which we profane God's name. And we could think of many others, probably, but I wanted to illustrate that for you. Uh, how often, if we're not careful, we are profaning God's name. But here, Jesus says, I have declared unto them thy name. In other words, all of the ways by which um, God re has revealed himself. We take, and, I, and I, before I leave this, I, I just want to say this, we take God's name in vain when we break his commandments. When we, again, can just break his commandments and just go on our merry way, we are profaning him because he's the one who's given us his commandments. He's holy, he's righteous. When we, again, can dishonor our parents, and children, uh, for you, when, when you dishonor your parents, when you rebel against your parents, when God's
commandment says, honor thy father and thy mother. And you, you disregard that and you dishonor them. You rebel against them when um, they have told you what is right and that which is good and that which you should do. Um, then you are profaning God's name. Um, when we do not keep lawful covenants, uh, we are profaning God's name. When we do not, again, when we're not thankful for the necessities of life that he's given to us, our health, our salvation, we're profaning God's name. Um, and uh, again, we just need to see how broad it is and what it is to profane God's name to see how often we break that commandment in our own lives. Jesus ends his pr prayer here by praying that the love that uh, the Father and the Son have for one another would be present and manifested in the words and deeds of all of his disciples uh, toward one another and especially toward God, that love toward God and toward one another. You see, if we truly love God, uh, if we truly love the Lord Jesus, how do we demonstrate that we do? By keeping his commandments. Uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. John, 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that you keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. His commandments for those who love him don't find his commandments to be a burden. Uh, don't find it to be, oh, so hard. I've got to keep God's commandments. They want to keep. Those who truly understand the love of God want to keep his commandments. Even if we fail, we still see by way of our repentance and by way of our seeking his forgiveness, we evidence, I really do want to keep thy commandments, Lord. Parents, if, if your children say, Mom, Dad, I love you, but they disregard what you say, they just go on and, and just uh, do what they want to do and rebel against your authority, uh, would you question whether they really love you? I, I think I would uh, question whether that's really love. Do they really understand what it means? They may say it, and we may say to the Lord, I love you, but if we don't want to keep his commandments, um, I dare say those are just mere words. Those, those, those do not truly express our understanding of what um, true love is. 1 Corinthians 13 says Christ's love is patient and kind, and so must ours be. Christ's love is not easily provoked to anger. Neither must our love be easily provoked to anger. Christ's love rejoices not in sin and in iniquity, but rather Christ's love rejoices in the truth, and so must ours. Christ's love does not give up, doesn't quit. 
especially when it's hard. That's when the test comes. Neither must our love give up, surrender. That's the kind of love that Jesus is praying for here, to be evidenced in our life. And that's quite different from the love of the world. That's quite different from the love in this culture, unbelieving world. And so, as, as I close, do our words and our actions rather reflect the idea of love that the culture around us has, that's seen on TV, that kind of love? Is that what our love reflects? Is that what our love looks like? The love of the culture around us? Or rather, do our words and do our, does our love reflect in, in our words and in our deeds uh, the love of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us and who said, if you love me, then keep my commandments. Let's uh, stand in prayer. <clears throat> Our Lord, we thank Thee for this prayer. O righteous Father, Thou art good. Uh, thou art holy. We thank Thee, Lord Jesus, for leaving uh, for us this intercessory prayer that reminds us what thou dost pray for us effectually. This is thy will. And Lord, we pray that, that thou would help us uh, to grasp, to understand, and to apply, Lord, these truths. That we would not, uh, having heard this, simply walk away and forget. Let us, Lord, not be uh, forgetful hearers, but effectual doers, and thereby show that we truly understand the love of Jesus Christ, even when it's hard and difficult, that we understand the love of Christ in doing what he has called us to do. We show our love for him. We show our love for thee, our Father, and blessed Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.